Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Welcome back everyone. Today we've got a not really proper episode for you I'm afraid. I've been working hard on the conclusion to the Enchantra Pengesic, which I'd hoped to get out before the new year, but which the season looks like it's going to get in the way of, pushing the release into early January sometime. It's obviously been a quite quiet year here on the podcast, and I've not had the chance to do a full Christmas-themed episode like last year. However, here is a small morsel, both to tide you over and to recognise Christmas, Yule, the winter solstice, and this whole strange festive season. Now there's definitely been a notable resurgence in older, darker Christmas traditions in the past few years, with Krampus once again becoming a popular figure, more ghost stories being told, and there's a wonderfully rich gothic advent hashtag on Twitter, if you like that kind of thing. And we're going to join in with all of that. If you want a full load of Christmas ghosts and haven't heard last year's episodes, well, I strongly suggest you check them out. But if you've already heard those, or you just don't want to listen to them, well, we've got this little tale for you. Now before we go into it, I should say that on this podcast we've tended to cover stories that are, while far from unknown, not in the kind of Premier League of folk stories and mythology. You might have noticed the absence of King Arthur or Robin Hood. But this very short little tale probably is one of the best-known Christmas tales, outside of the nativity and a Christmas carol perhaps, a story that's known appropriately from the carol version of it. So apologies if you've heard this one before, but let's crack on with the story of the Mistletoe Bride. Long even before a certain renowned child was born, It's been customary in the midwinter to cut down the evergreens in their prime, a just punishment for their hubris in the face of the bitter onslaught of the winter winds. And it was in keeping with this ancient tradition that the castle hall was bedecked in a splendid greenery. Garlands composed of holly, ivy and the white Christmas rose decorated the walls. The gargantuan yule log burned brightly in the fire and, hanging from the ceiling in the centre of the hall, was a huge bough of mistletoe. On the table was set a sumptuous feast, with dishes extravagant, far more numerous than you care to hear me list now, and not at all suitable for a vegan. The large polished oak floor of that long room was thronged with dancing lords and ladies. It was Christmas Day, but it was not just the japes, merriment and general festivities of what we now call the holiday season, that was being celebrated inside the castle that day. No, today it was two celebrations for the price of one. For this very Christmas morning, Lord Lovell had been married in what had been a very extravagant and a very touching service. And now him and his new bride were breaking out the moves on the dance floor. Let's back up just a minute and establish where we are and when we are. Well. We're in some kind of pre-modern era, definitely, but it might be the 1700s, 
and the hall we're talking about is actually in an extensive manor house, styling itself a castle in much the same way as a restaurant might style a meal, an immersive dining experience. But then again, it might just as well be half a millennia earlier, and in an actual fortified medieval castle, with all the guests dressed in pointy hats, leggings and the like. It could be any of the Christmas times in between as well. And it really doesn't matter all that much, for the story is much the same. And this goes too for the place. It's certainly in England, but it might be at the Grand Marwell Hall, down near the south coast. Or perhaps it's taking place at Brockdish Hall in East Anglia, at Exton Manor in Rutland. Or perhaps Minster Lovell Hall in Oxfordshire, which certainly has the correct name. Or many, many more possible castles and halls where this event might have taken place. And many of the people local to those grand houses will swear it happened in the one closest to them. However, given you are as likely as your humble storyteller to be intimately familiar with the peculiarities and particulars of each of these possible locations, we can just stick with a big hall somewhere. And so, back to our happy dancing revellers. father of the bride looked on proudly. He just so happened to be a baron, which made his daughter a perfect match for the young lord. What a wonderful coincidence. Now the dancing had been going on for quite a while, and the married couple were of course at the centre of attention, the bride especially. She was very happy with the evening, but naturally after a while grew a bit tired of all the activity, and, probably wanting a little bit of rest and time to herself, proposed a different entertainment for her guests. I know, let's play hide and seek. You lot wait here for a while. I'll go off and find somewhere where I can hide and get a bit of a break, and then you can all look for me. And my darling husband, she addressed Lord Lovell teasingly, you'd best be the one who finds me. And this being her wedding day, and hide and seek being a lot of fun, well, that's what they did. The guests waited, and off she ran. And now two tangents. I know we've only just had one, but this is a short story, and you're going to get more tangent than content this episode. I hope the change in proportions don't ruin the flavour. Firstly, let's address this game. It might seem odd to you that a bunch of adults, splendidly rich adults at that, are playing hide-and-seek. To which I say, yes, I agree. But this was before the days of all those newfangled modern gadgets after all. And back then, people had to make their own entertainment. And even in these modern times, it turns out that there's an international hide-and-seek competition held every year. So, it's not entirely dead yet. Also, just, if you happen to be the owner of a house where a sizeable size wedding party can play hide-and-seek, well, it kind of makes sense to make use of that. And while we're on the game, some listeners might question, is it really hide-and-seek if only one person hides? To which I'm going to respond, yes. Now, it's a less frequent variant, and one that might be expected to lead to sardines. However, sardines is not really an appropriate game for a young bride to play with her family, the groom's family, and all their friends. But it is a legitimate variation on hide-and-seek. And also, 
Christmas wedding, you might be asking. You probably aren't asking these questions, but you could be. I was. What madness is this? And indeed, today, you would be right. Christmas Day is the single least popular day of the year to get hitched. But it did used to be very popular indeed. Now, one reason for this, which doesn't really apply here, is that it used to be one of the few days working people got off in the year. Another reason that might apply is that actually back then it kind of worked out cheaper. Imagine if you're a lord, and one of the very few things you're expected to actually do for your community is to put on a huge feast every Christmas. And you're also expected to do a big feast for a wedding. And feasts, well, feasts are very expensive. Wouldn't it be quite convenient if those two happened at the same time and you got to fulfil your feast quota at two for the price of one? Why? Yes, it would. But I should mention another, even more questionable reason that this might have happened on Christmas Day that is quoted in at least one source for the story. That being that the still unnamed bride happened to turn 16 that very Christmas Day, making it a triple celebration, even cheaper, but more pertinently, the obvious choice for a wedding day if you happen to see your daughter as a commodity to trade away. But whatever the reasons, Christmas Day did, on this occasion, make perfect sense for a wedding. So yes, back to our game of Bride and Seek. The bride ran. Swiftly she passed along many winding corridors, ran up and down staircases, and through a variety of rooms, grand and small. One potato, two potato, three potato, chanted the wedding party in the hall. This place really was vast, and ample opportunities for concealment presented themselves. In the small pantries, under the beds, behind the tapestries, she could take her pick. An indecision was really her greatest enemy. And then, in a small storage room, quite distant from the main hall, she found it. The perfect place. A place she could rest a while, until she would have to be found and have to continue her wedding. 100 potato, ready or not, here we come. And then the castle was a hive of activity, as the guests, giddy with the excitement of the game, with the booze and with the wedding, took to exploring every nook and cranny of that building. They swarmed along the winding corridors, up and down the staircases, and through a variety of rooms, grand and small. They looked in the small pantries, under the beds and behind the tapestries, and had the most tremendous fun. And they continued looking. And after a while it became a bit less fun. At some point, there came that moment when the exhilaration really died. Everyone stops, breathes heavily, looks around nervously, and a rising sense of panic begins to spread. In some, it manifested itself in anger. Surely she knew now it had gone on long enough. She'd won. Okay, time for her to give up this stupid, childish game now. She was a woman. Those people began to yell her name, the name that is never revealed to us. Yell it angrily. Others yelled it pleadingly. Gradually, though, the anger subsided and worry took over. Right, they'd get the servants involved. There was loads of them. They'd have no problem. 
and so pulled away from their important tasks, and probably cursing the ridiculous whims of their masters. The servants trudged along the winding corridors, up and down the staircases, and through the variety of rooms, grand and small. They looked in the small pantries, under the beds, and behind the tapestries. They looked everywhere they could think of, and of the bride, there was no sign. Gradually, the day turned from one of celebration to one of horror. The game of hide-and-seek continued, but with every passing hour it became more awful, as no bride was found. Scenarios presented themselves to everyone's imagination. Someone had abducted her, a servant perhaps, or a jealous lover. Perhaps she'd surprised a burglar, though there was no evidence of such a thing. Darker suspicions began to be raised. The game went on. It went on all through the night, and all through the next day too. But people have lives to live, responsibilities, however serious the situation. However much it was vital she should be found, at some point, each now unwilling participant had to choose to stop, to go home, to continue their life, and leave the search behind. A difficult decision for everyone, but for some, impossible. For Lord Lovell and the Baron, well, those two would find that to some extent or another, they'd still be playing that game for years and even decades afterwards. A life consumed by a never-ending torture of hide-and-seek. Of course, losing a loved one is always heart-wrenching, and it's difficult to convey the sheer, overwhelming awfulness of any grief. But it's generally acknowledged that for many, a key part of the grieving process is to understand. We just want to know what happened. It's a familiar cry, and one which passed the lips of Lord Lovell a great many times during his life. He was a changed man. He never wed again. He could never be said to have recovered from the tragic events of what should have been such a happy day and the beginning of the rest of his life. As for the Baron, the heartbroken father of the bride was to go to an early grave, never knowing. But Lovell lingered on, a gaunt, ghostly figure, and the missing woman would become famed in the local area, known not by her actual name, which was lost in the passing of the years, but simply as the mistletoe bride, in reference to that ill-fated Christmas marriage. Lovell cut a despondent figure when he went about, and children in the know would tell others that the man weeped for his lost, missing bride. He had grown to be an old man by the time an inquisitive servant thought to pry open the heavy lid of the huge oak chest that was hidden away in a dark corner of one of the many small rooms of the huge castle. Hidden behind and under miscellanea and bric-a-brac that had collected over the years. And having pried it open, that servant had sudden cause to jump back in terror, and the lid of the oak chest immediately slammed shut again, 
with a heavy thud. The horrified man ran and fetched others, told them what he had seen, and in a short while more gathered round that chest, pulling it out into the centre of the room. Together they levered up that weighty lid, held it open, and they gazed down at the contents of the chest in a ghastly silence, gazed down at the skeleton, the skeleton still clad in the shining white wedding gown. All those years previous, the young bride had spied the slightly hidden chest, jumped in, pulled the lid shut, and the springs had brought that lid down far harder and faster than she could ever have expected. And there she had been, trapped. And alas, she was not the yellow jumpsuited variety of bride, who could punch her way out of a coffin and the earth on top of it to boot. No, for her, her hiding place was to be her tomb. Perhaps she cried out frantically, but no one heard her cries in the commotion and through the solid wood. Did she hear people searching for her, calling out her name? Did she die a long and terrible, drawn-out death of starvation, going slowly mad, encased in this tiny place? Or perhaps she suffocated, comparatively merciful, and yet still utterly awful. Maybe the lid of the impromptu coffin cracked her over the head and she sank into it, already dead. However it happened didn't really matter. A game of hide-and-seek had taken her life away on her wedding day and at Christmas. Lord Lovell would die soon after this most gruesome of discoveries, and the legend of his poor mistletoe bride will be told throughout the centuries. And there we have it. What a jolly Christmas tale. Now, first of all, I want to say that, clearly, the takeaway from this story is that perhaps one person or family shouldn't really have a house that is big enough to hide someone in for years, despite having huge teams of people scouring it. Maybe there's just something not right about that. Now, I'm not seeking to do any victim-blaming here, but it does just seem to be one obvious takeaway. Moving on from that, though, let's briefly discuss the origins and a bit of a history of this story here. Now, as I said at the start of the episode, this story was popularised as a ballad, or carol, written by English songwriter T.H. Bailey and dating to the 1830s. And that's pretty much the version I have told here, with the odd tweak here and there. Now, there are a couple of earlier references to a very similar story. The first complete telling is in an 1822 book, where the story is set in Italy, though there's no indication it was an Italian tale. And there's also a record in a Boston newspaper, Boston America that is, from 1809, recounting the story as having happened in a large German house, with the story presented as fact, and referred to rather wonderfully as a melancholy occurrence. In both of these earlier versions, the Christmas element is completely absent, and that seems to have been added by Bailey. Now, it was Bailey's version set in some unnamed English castle or manor house, 
that got famous. And this is the story that stuck. Now, it does seem likely, probable even, that the story might have been knocking around for a while in one form or another. Nevertheless, I'm tempted to side with Mike Yates, who notes that the song is, quote, trying hard to seem an older song than it actually is, unquote, which seems fairly correct. He also references how neatly the tropes within it mesh with gothic literature. And this song of Bailey's really did capture the imagination. It really took off and became a wildly popular Victorian Christmas song, with one Victorian writer calling it, quote, a national occurrence at Christmas, unquote, and another, quote, one of the most popular songs ever written, unquote, which is quite some claim. Now, there have been a number of plays based on it, and there's actually a 1904 film version, which you can watch for free online now, complete with a brief appearance by a ghostly apparition of the deceased bride. Clearly the popularity of the tale has waned from these giddy heights, however it remains a very well-known story even to this day. There's something about these various motifs, death, young lovers, Christmas, all mixed together, that seems to be quite appealing. Now, it's presuming in the late Victorian era when the story began to be attached to many country houses up and down the country. And oftentimes owners of these houses have claimed that this was a very real event that very definitely happened in their house. Which all goes to show how a popular piece of mainstream culture can become folkloric and pass from fiction to fact in a very small amount of time. There are some variants on the story. Sometimes an evil character is introduced to do the trapping. In some what I regard as cowardly versions of the tale, the bride is found not a moment too soon and saved, and others explicitly address the most unbelievable bit of it that it took so many years afterwards for her to be found, by explicitly referring to suffocation or a cracked skull and having the bride be found sooner. Did it really happen? Probably not. Is the ghastly premature death of a rich young woman on her wedding day exactly the kind of story that for some reason appeals to the imagination of many and seems fitting for a spooky Christmas yarn? Indeed it is. And that's where we're going to leave it for today. I told you it'd be short. As I said at the start of the episode, we'll finish The Enchanter of Pengesic very soon. In the meantime, if you want more Christmas folklore, I'm going to recommend checking out the Bone and Sickle podcast which, aside from being sublimely produced, has a number of episodes that focus on the darker sides of Christmas traditions. And no, I've got no connection to it, it's just a good podcast. And finally, finally, I promise, before the episode credits, I've included an old recording of the song from today's episode, The Mistletoe Bow. It's definitely a bit, read very, scratchy, but given this story has been passed down predominantly in song, it seemed like it was worth giving you all an opportunity to hear it. If you don't fancy that spotty old recording, feel free to switch off now, but I would recommend you go and find one of the excellent modern recordings on YouTube. And with that, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all.
And love will be sure that the first to trace the clue to my secret hiding place. Away she ran and her friend began. It's hard to thought and it's no to stand. And young level cried, oh, where does thou hide? I've lost love without thee, I won't. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast then please do share it with others or give it a review as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.